Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Man, it's good to be here this morning worshiping with everyone. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you would, read along with me. Sorry, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as for shoes... For your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If you would pray along with with me this morning. Father God, Lord, we lift you up, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, Lord, and your kindness towards us, your grace that you have poured out on us, Lord. God, I pray as a church, Lord, we understand, as I've been praying, that there is a spiritual reality outside of us, Lord, that we are at war. There is a war raging, Lord, that we cannot see. Lord, I thank you for the blessings that you have given us as a nation, Lord, the comforts of this world, Lord, but I pray that those comforts don't blind us to the reality, Lord, that's outside of us. Be with us this morning, Lord. Help us to see how important it is to take up the armor of God in this battle, Lord, how important it is to stand firm by by putting on your armor. I pray that we do that boldly, that the church stands firm boldly in your name. Pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, welcome if you're new this morning and you haven't been following along with us the last couple weeks. Over a month now, we've been in a study of spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And we're going to continue looking at the armor of God this morning by looking at three crucial pieces of armor that's needed in our spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. It's needed to stand firm in the Lord. And these three pieces that we're going to look at this morning are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of Spirit, that's going to be our three points this morning. We have a lot to cover, so I just want to jump right into it. We're going to look at the shield of faith first. If you would, look at verse 16 again. It says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Again, We've been saying Paul is in prison when he wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus. It's called a prison epistle, a prison letter, because Paul was in prison during this time. He actually was in house arrest, chained to a a Roman soldier, so he was able to study a Roman soldier's armor very closely. When you look at a Roman soldier, they really had two different types of shields. When you look back at the history of um, uh, the soldiers, they had two different types of shields. One was a small round shield that was used in hand-to-hand combat and it was used mostly for, for sword battle. There was a second type of shield that was used by Roman soldiers, and it was actually a large door-shaped shield. It was four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. It was a wood shield that was covered with leather, 
It was meant to protect the whole body from arrows. The Roman soldiers, in fact, would stand side by side and put these shields down as arrows would be coming flying their way, and it protected them from arrows. And I think this is the shield that Paul is referring to, because look at verse 16. It says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That word darts could be translated throwing darts, which was a weapon, or arrows. Arrows that were shot. What would happen is these soldiers would have these large shields and they would dip them into water. Right? They are wood. They would dip them into water so the wood would be soaked with water. And that's because enemies would shoot arrows at the Roman soldiers and they would set these arrows on fire. When an arrow would land on the wood-soaked shield, it would be, flames would be put out and would be uh, made harmless. God, or, uh, Paul relates these large shields to faith. Faith. Right? Faith protects us from the flaming darts of the evil one, from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan's darts or arrows come in all different shapes and sizes. They come in sizes of impurity, right? selfishness, doubt, fear, discouragement, vanity, covetedness, lust, pride, all seductive temptations to get us to not trust God, to not worship God, to sin. Satan's flaming darts really are temptations. They're temptations that come our way, and we fight these temptations with the shield of faith. With faith. Think of Jesus. We spent a lot of time talking about Jesus' battle with Satan, his example of taking the armor of God and fighting against Satan from from the flaming arrows of Satan. Think of those three temptations. That's what they were, the flaming darts of Satan that were, were shot his way. In all three temptations, he quoted Scripture. He uses the sword of the Spirit, which we've talked about, but he also trusted his Father. Through all three temptations, he had faith in his Father, and he obeyed what God asked him to do. Think of Eve, on the other hand. We spent a lot of time talking about Eve's battle with Satan. She failed to pick up the armor of God. She left it down. She, she failed. She didn't trust God. She didn't put, um, take up the shield of faith. Satan attacked with temptation, saying, eat the fruit, the one fruit that she was not supposed to eat. Satan told her that God was holding something back, that he doesn't love her with this temptation. These were the flaming darts of the evil one, these lies and temptation, and Eve believed these lies. She didn't trust God. She didn't put her faith in God. She sinned and disobeyed. This is so important. We need to understand this. Faith in God. Faith in God always leads to obedience. Faith in God always leads to obedience because if you truly trust God, you obey Him. You'll do what He asks you to do. Faith always always leads to obedience, and obedience always leads to blessings. Obedience always leads to blessings. In fact, Proverbs 8.34 says this, Blessed is the one who listens to me. Right? The one who obeys will be blessed. Luke uh, 11.28, Jesus said this, Blessed, rather, are those that hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, hear God's word and do it. Does it. 
Blessed are those who hear God's word and obey. The belt of truth is God's word. We said the breastplate of righteousness is doing God's word, that we're called to be um, not hearers only, but doers. And that doing leads to blessing. In fact, turn with me to Acts, or not Acts, uh, James chapter 1, verse 19. This is a passage we went over last week talking about the breastplate of righteousness, that we, we can't just hear truth, right? The belt of truth is useless without the breastplate. Right? The belt keeps the breastplate in intact. We, we need the truth, and we need to listen to the truth and do the truth. James 1.19 is a passage we went over last week talking about the breastplate of righteousness, and it says this in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently into the, uh, um, at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, listen to what it says, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. The Greek word blessed here is used actually a lot in the New Testament. It's the Greek word mark karyos, uh, which means pertaining to being happy or joy-filled. You want to be happy? You want to be joy-filled? Trust God. Obey God. Have faith that there is joy on the other side of obedience. Again, look what it says in James 1.25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's God's word, right? God's law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Listen, obedience is sometimes hard, right? Sometimes it's extremely hard. But faith says, I trust that there's joy on the other side of obedience, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross was faithful obedience. It was hard obedience, and he did it for the joy set before him that there was joy on the other side of the cross. Listen, faith always leads to obedience. Because when you have faith, when you trust God, you trust that God wants what's best for you. And because when you have faith, when you trust, you trust that God knows what's best for you. Therefore, the fruit of faith and trusting God and having faith in God is always obedience. And listen, the fruit of obedience is joy. You know why? Because God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Faith is our shield and protection in spiritual warfare. Faith protects us from temptation. 
Faith protects us from the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith leads to true freedom of sin because it trusts God. I was thinking about this, and I've talked about faith a lot from the pulpit, and I wanted to not spend too much time on faith, and I just wanted to really give a practical example of how faith protects us from temptation, from the flaming darts of the evil one. And so I just started thinking through my head, and, and the one that popped out that just was on my heart is one of the most graphic extreme examples of how faith in God protects us from temptation. And that's the Christian's man's fight against pornography. We want to talk about spiritual warfare. That's war. Men, you want to be men. You want to be warriors. Battle. Battle. I don't know how many young men have come to my office and come to me just entangled in addiction to pornography. I tell them this is war. You're you're engaged in spiritual warfare. I tell them the only way you're going to stay away from lust and pornography is if you take up the shield of faith. If you truly believe, if you have faith, that there is a greater joy out there. That there's a greater pleasure out there. There's a greater happiness out there than pornography and sex. You have to fight fire flaming darts of the evil one. You have to fight fire with a greater fire. The fire of lust, sex, and pornography with the infinitely greater fire of the surpassing worth and joy found in a relationship with Christ Jesus. That's why Paul said, for the sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In other words, all the pleasures of this life as rubbish. I count it as rubbish, as trash in order that I may gain Christ. I count everything as rubbish compared to the joy found in Christ. Listen, when temptation comes, you have to make a to- choice. When temptation comes, there's always a choice, and this is war. When temptation comes, that's war. It's spiritual warfare. You need Ephesians 6. You need to put on the armor of God, truth, righteousness, faith, the word. When temptation comes, when you're at home and you're on the computer or on your phone and a link pops up and you know there's instant pleasure on the other side of that link. It's one click away. You have a choice to click instant pleasure, choice A or choice B to not click. Obedience. Faith says there's greater joy on the other side of obedience, even though everything in me wants to click. The only way someone that's struggling with the addiction of pornography will choose obedience is if they truly believe, if they have faith, that obedience will bring more joy, more pleasure, and more happiness in the long run. That's faith. It's faith. It's true with any temptation. Any temptation you struggle with, you have a choice to sin or be obedient. The only way you'll truly be godly obedient is you have faith that obedience will bring joy in the long run. That you trust God. It's that type of faith that extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith 
is a shield that protects us from temptation. That's the shield of faith. We need to take up the shield of faith as Christians, as a church. We need to put on the helmet of salvation, take up the helmet of salvation. Look at Ephesians 6, 16. It says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. What is the helmet of salvation? Simply, it's hope. It's hope. It's hope found in the promises surrounding our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says this, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. In physical warfare, for a Roman soldier, the the helmet protected the head, right? It protected the head of a Roman soldier from large double-edged swords. What would happen is the enemy um, would have these large double-edged swords, and the cavalrymen on the horses would come around, and they would use these swords to crush the enemy's heads. It was a death blow. One blow would be a death blow without a helmet. The helmet protected the head. In spiritual warfare, the hope of salvation protects us from Satan's double-edged sword of, of discouragement and doubt. A crushing blow of discouragement and doubt. There are many ways Satan tries to discourage us in our walk. One way we've talked about is reminding us of all of our failures. As we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we will fail in our obedience to God. And Satan, the accuser, likes to keep bringing up our failures so that we are um, unable to walk the life we're called to live, but we've learned through the gospel of peace that we should expose our sins, ask for forgiveness from God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. One way God, Satan, uh, tries to discourage us is to remind us of our failures, but another way Satan discourages us is, is to attack us when we face hard circumstances. Wayward children, unsaved spouses, poor health, marriage struggles, death of a loved one, anxiety, financial struggles, job loss. Satan wants us to be discouraged when these things come. He wants us to doubt God's love. The protection from this discouragement is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. If you would turn to First Peter chapter one verse three. First Peter chapter one verse three. Verse three says this Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have hope. If you're saved this morning, if you have a relationship with Christ, you have hope. No matter how bad things get in this life, we have hope. 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's amazing. I just don't think we know how blessed we truly are. I don't think we get, I know I don't, how much is promised to us in our salvation. I just want to read a portion of a systematic theology book called Biblical Doctrines. It's talking about our inheritance. Just listen to what this says. In addition to all these privileges that we enjoy in this present time, our adoption as children of God also guarantees us a share in the future inheritance of eternal life. Paul writes that if we are adopted children, then we must be also be heirs. We are no longer slaves, but sons, and if sons, then an heir through God, Galatians 4, 7. What is an heir? In human relationships, sons and daughters inherit the estate of their parents at the time of their passing. All that belongs to the parents is bestowed to the children as they carry on the family's name and legacy. In other words, everything a mom and dad has gets passed down to their children, the heir. In a similar way, though by nature we have no rightful claim to all the riches of the kingdom of God, by grace we have become God's adopted children and have thus become legal heirs of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1.4. So real is our inheritance that we, uh, that we are described as Fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. In other words, Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance. Everything that Christ will receive by divine right as God's natural son, we will receive by divine grace as adopted children of God. Because Christ is God's son, all that the Father has belongs to him. Because we are in Christ, everything that is Christ is ours. That's Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. With everything. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is how we rejoice in trials. James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's because of our hope. Our hope found in our salvation. Look at verse 6 again. It says, In this you rejoice, in this promise, in inheritance, the promise that comes with our salvation, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
There's two reasons why we rejoice through trials. The first one is this. Our trials are temporary. A little while, Peter says. A second reason, though, is this. Our trials don't even compare to the joy promised in our salvation. Listen, I don't say that lightly. I've been ministering here for 10 years now, and I have seen some great pain. I've seen some pain people in our church have gone through. This life has many sorrows, many pain. This is a fallen fallen place, and we see sorrows and grief, but listen, it does not compare to the joy of the next life. That's amazing. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light and momentary affliction. Think about that. Paul. Paul who became a Christian and lost everything. Right? He was, he was a rock star before he became a Christian, a Pharisee. Everyone wanted to be Paul. They didn't like him, but they wanted to be him. He lost it all. He was thrown in prison, I don't know how many times. Beaten, I don't know how many times. Stoned once, they thought he was dead. He had to have been scarred from his head to his toes. And he calls it light and momentary affliction. Preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, our afflictions don't even compare to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us in eternity. We rejoice in trials because we have hope. Hope of an everlasting joy. Listen, when we were saved, when we put our faith in Christ, we were given hope. Right? A hope of a future inheritance, a hope of a future eternity, a, a promised everlasting joy that's the hope of our salvation. And this hope is the helmet that protects us from the devastating blow of discouragement and doubt. You know, we have been spending a lot of time on spiritual battles. And throughout all of Scripture, Satan is behind the scenes causing all types of de- doubt and discouragement and temptations. But there's a few places in Scripture where God reveals what's going on behind the scenes, and we've talked about a few of them. We've talked about Jesus' temptation, where God shows behind the scenes what Jesus was doing in this conversation, or Satan was doing in this conversation with Jesus, and the temptations, the three temptations, the three flaming arrows he threw at Jesus. We talked about Eve, God pulls back the curtains there, and we get to see this interaction between Eve and the serpent and the spiritual battle that happened there. There's one story we haven't spent much time on, and that's the story of Job. God pulls back the curtain and shows us what's happening behind the scenes with Job. The story of Job, think about it, right? We want to talk about spiritual warfare. Job loses everything at the hands of Satan. He lost his wealth, his health. He gets to this place where he's unrecognizable. He has to take things to scrape these boils he has on his body. But more than that, and worst of all, and I think sometimes we skip over this, he lost all of his sons and daughters in one day. Can you imagine? His whole family, except his wife, who Satan spares to use her to discourage him, 
she comes and tells him to curse God and die. Spits at him while he's down, pretty much. And not only that, Satan brings three friends that are supposed to come to encourage him, but they end up discouraging him. They pretty much say, hey, this is your fault. You deserve it. Talk about discouragement, right? Job was tempted. You see him fighting through the whole book, tempted to doubt God's love. And at the lowest point, right, Job holds on to one thing. One thing. It's Job 19.25. It says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He holds on to the hope of his salvation. He says, after my skin is, is thus destroyed, after I die, in other words, and he's almost there, after I've been buried and my skin disintegrates, yet in my flesh, one day I'll have flesh again, and I will see my God. He holds on to the hope of his salvation, the helmet that protects him from discouragement. Listen, Job wasn't perfect. We learned that through the book of Job. But he held on to the hope found into his salvation. the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then my favorite, the sword of the Spirit. Look at verse 16, Ephesians 6, verse 16. It says this, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul really ends where he started, with truth. Truth. They put on the belt of truth. Listen, the belt was defensive. The word of God's defensive. We study the word of God because we know Satan's attacks are going to come, and and we defend defend from his schemes with truth. It's also offensive. The sword of the Spirit. The sword is an offensive weapon. In fact, it's the only offensive weapon given to the church. Ian Duggan wrote this, Indeed, the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon we have been given with which to deal the, the devil a decisive blow. All the rest of the Christian armor is defensive in nature. The belt, the breastplate, the boots, the shield, and the helmet can ward off Satan's blows and defend you against his attacks. But only, the only thing that can really puncture him is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Why don't you think of the apostles for a second? Because the apostles made the mistake. They, they, they put too much emphasis and, and too much value in physical warfare, in, in a sword, a physical sword. They thought Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come and be a geopolitical ruler, in other words, an earthly king, that he was going to come and overthrow the Roman government with swords, physical swords. He was going to get an army together, and they were going to battle against the Roman government. In fact, think of the end of the Gospels. Peter foolishly pulls out his physical sword and chops off the ear of one of the servants that was trying to arrest Jesus. And what did Jesus tell Peter? Put that sword away, Peter. Put that sword away. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't war against flesh and blood. Listen, the church has been given a way more powerful weapon. 
a way more powerful weapon than physical weapons, than swords, than guns, than tanks, missiles, bombs, or jets. We use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen, it's powerful. It's powerful. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The disciples were full. The, the apostles were thinking of the wrong sword. I want to ask a question. What changed with the disciples? The twelve in the Gospels, right? The, the, you have the twelve and then there's disciples outside of the twelve. Right? Men who are clueless. Right? Men who are scared fleshly, proud. Then you get to the book of Acts. Not that much time has elapsed. And you see these men who are brave, fearless, wise, and powerful. Men who, Acts 17, 6, says that that they turned the whole world upside down. Men that sacrificed everything, all 12 martyred, besides one, John, who has died of old age in prison. What changed? You can say it out loud. Holy Spirit. You know, that's what everyone says, right? Whenever I ask that question, it's always the answer I get, the Holy Spirit. It's partly because it's true. Luke 24, 48 says this, You will be my witnesses of these sayings, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, right? That's the Holy Spirit. And then it says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power is the Holy Spirit. Don't go out until you have the Spirit and you're clothed with power. But you know what? Most people forget a very important part to the equation. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit that changed them. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Luke chapter 24, verse 45. It says this, Then he, that's Jesus, opened their minds to understand scriptures. Jesus taught them scripture. Jesus said, use the sword of the Spirit. And not only that, he says, this is how you use the sword of the Spirit. Look at verse 46. He says, and he said to them, thus it is written. He's going to give them an example of how to use the sword. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying, hey, that's what the Old Testament said. The whole Old Testament says this. This is what's going to happen. He's using the sword of the Spirit. He's showing them how to use the sword of the Spirit. And that's some deep theology. Jesus in the Old Testament, that's understanding your scriptures extremely well. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Just verse 25, the same chapter. We are familiar with this story. It's two men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died. They are disappointed because they thought he was going to be this physical ruler. He was going to use a sword to overthrow the Roman government. 
and they're disappointed because now he's dead. Jesus appears and is walking with them and for some reason hides his identity. They have no idea it's Jesus. And this is what he says to them. Verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He calls them foolish ones because they didn't believe the scriptures. They didn't believe what the Old Testament said about Jesus. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the beginning of Scripture, and all of the prophets, that's just the whole Testament, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine how long that would have taken? Right, let's start in Genesis. We're going to go through the whole Old Testament. Right? Sit down. It's going to be a while. Right, we read over that, and we think they're just walking, and he says something about the Old Testament, but he sat there and taught them in depth, in length. Jesus wanted his disciples to know Scripture. Deep theology, too, how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. You want to talk about deep theology, study that. You know, one day, I was with a, a Christian man from our community. He doesn't go to our church. But he learned that I wanted to be a pastor, and I was going to seminary. I was about halfway done with seminary at this point. He asked me, why are you spending so much time in school? It's kind of like, it's encouraging. I'm really struggling right now with seminary, writing a paper. And he said, don't you know you have the Holy Spirit? He said, the apostles were uneducated. They didn't need school. All they needed was the Holy Spirit. Here's my question. If the only thing the disciples needed was the Holy Spirit, then why did Jesus, why didn't Jesus send the Holy Spirit right away after he died? Why did he meet with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus first and spend valuable time teaching them deep theology? Again, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures. <laughs> he didn't just pick a proof text. He didn't just go to Isaiah 53. You know what's funny is most Christians today say, well, that's a waste of time. Deep theology. Why would you spend so much time studying that? Again, if the only thing the disciples needed was the Holy Spirit, why did he meet with the eleven and spend valuable time talking about the Old Testament? Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written. If the only thing the disciples needed was the Holy Spirit, why did he spend 40 days with the disciples teaching them before he sent the Spirit? Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, starts off by saying in, in the first book, right, the first book is the Gospel of Luke. Just so you know, Luke and Acts were written together. Luke wrote both of them. It could be Luke part 1 and Luke part 2. It's probably too close to Star Wars, so we'll say Acts part 1 and Acts part 2. The, book, the books were meant to go together. You have the first part and the second part. 
And so Luke is recapping right here the, the first gospel. He says this in the first book, right, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to, to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's the end of Luke. He was taken up, right? Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after he suffered by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Before he ascended, and remember, he ascended partly to, to send the Holy Spirit. I must go so I can send the Holy Spirit. He told them that. Before he ascended, he spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. That's an intense study of Scripture, intense study of the Old Testament. That's deep theology. You want to talk about deep theology, study the kingdom of God in Scripture. 40 straight days studying Scripture. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's the Holy Spirit. He said, don't go out with the Holy Spirit. But he only sent the Holy Spirit after 40 days of intense study. You need to remind you, too, that's after three years walking with the Twelve, teaching them, preparing them for ministry. Side note, this is just my opinion. But if a church doesn't value their pastors or missionaries being educated or trained in the Word of God, Bible school, seminary, missionary training. I would question their value they hold to the word of God itself. The apostles started off uneducated. But at the time they were sent to, to minister, they were educated. <laughs> they were taught by the best teacher ever. And still needed three years and 40 days of intense study. Deep, rich theology. Doctrine, the study of scripture. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit that changed the disciple. It was also the sword of the Spirit. They go hand in hand. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. Who's the author of scripture? God. In particular, the Spirit. Inspiring men to write deep, rich understanding of the Word of God. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. This is before the Holy Spirit has entered into Peter. We haven't got the Pentecost yet, and look what he says, verse 16. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Well, there's wisdom there. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He said, hey, the Old Testament talked about this. And look what Peter says in verse 20. For it is written, what does that sound like? Jesus. He's modeling Jesus and how he used the Spirit, right? The sword of the Spirit. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69. And let another take his, his office. That's Psalms 109. Peter is quoting the Old Testament. Turn with me to Acts 2, verse 17. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. Right? The Spirit comes. The Spirit is within all the apostles. And the first thing that happens is Peter bursts out in a sermon. <laughs> preaching. And this is what he says in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, 
that I will pour out my spirit on the flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and the old men shall dream dreams. You know what that is? That's quoting Joel 2. He's quoting it to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what's happening at Pentecost. He's using the Old Testament to explain what's going on. Look at Acts 2, verse 25. He says this, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Right? And he keeps going, just quotes Psalm 15. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 34, just a couple verses down. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's Psalms 110. That's one of the deepest statements in all of Scripture. You want to talk about a theologically rich verse? It's the one that, that Peter just quote. You want to talk about understanding a theologically rich, deep verse? Look at how Peter quotes it. Peter's sermon at Pentecost was deeply theological, biblically rich. He was wielding the sword of spirit, and 3,000 were saved. 3,000 saved, delivered from the dominion of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. That's power. 3,000 taken out of the hands of Satan. Offensive. By the sword of the Spirit. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3, verse 22. God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, Peter's quoting Moses now, the Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Look at verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel... And all those who have come after him also proclaim these days. Peter is saying all the prophets, right? all those books that are hard to interpret, <laughs> he's interpreting them, right? Peter has become a biblical scholar. And he keeps going. Peter, in Acts 3, verse 25, Peter quotes Genesis 22. In Acts 4, verse 25, Peter uh, prays Psalms 2. In Acts 8, verse 32, Philip quotes Psalms 53 and explains it to the Ethiopian eunuch. And of course, Paul. Acts 13, Paul quotes 1 Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, Amos. He just keeps going, right? It's just walking scripture. What about Acts 7? Stephen is one of my favorite characters in all of scripture, right? A disciple of Jesus. Right? A Christian. He's accused of blasphemy against Moses. So what does he do? He walks his accusers through the whole Old Testament. Acts 7 is just the, the whole Old Testament. He quotes Psalms, or Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Exodus 3, Deuteronomy 18, Exodus 32, Amos 5, Isaiah 66. And he proves from Scripture that it's actually his accusers who are blaspheming Moses and God. Handling the Word of God sword of the spirit and he's on attack 
You read Acts 7, man, he's on the tack. In fact, in Acts 6.10, it talks about Stephen. It says, they could not withstand the wisdom. The wisdom, that's, that's Stephen's understanding of Scripture and his use of Scripture. They couldn't, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit with which he was speaking. What changed with the disciples? From the disciples in, in, in the Gospels to the disciples in Acts, it wasn't just the Holy Spirit. Jesus made sure that they had a deep understanding of the Scriptures, that they knew theology and doctrine. He spent 40 days teaching Scripture, 40 days digging in deep, showing them how to use the sword of the Spirit. Then he gave them the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit used all of that Scripture understanding in the lives of the apostles in a powerful way. They turned the world upside down. We still feel the effects of it. America is America because of what happened in Acts. In fact, just in a couple of hundred years, the pagan Roman Empire became a Christian nation. Just a couple hundred years. The mighty Roman Empire could not withstand the sword of the Spirit. The apostles, right, they're walking with Jesus thinking that he was going to take over the Roman Empire with physical swords. He said, nope, I have something way more powerful than that. Not only that, all of Europe becomes a Christian. That's the power of the sword. And three points in the sermon this morning. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is powerful. I just want to end with this. It's 2,000 years later. We still have this armor. We still have this armor. Listen, we still have the sword of the Spirit fact, we have it in so many different translations, and it's available and much more available than it was in the first century. Second Timothy 2.15 says this, make every effort. You know what that means? Work hard. Discipline yourself. Put a lot of effort into this. Make every effort, Paul is saying, inspired by God, inspired by that same Spirit. Make every effort to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. In other words, correctly handling the sword of the Spirit. If there's a correct way of handling this, there's definitely a wrong way of handling this. We are called to work hard in understanding this and using this. The correct handling of the word is powerful. I've seen its power. I think a lot of us have seen its power. 25 years of Pastor Andy being up here just preaching scripture. Seeing people's lives changed. Not because of Andy, but because of the word. Because of the Holy Spirit working on people's heart through the word. I felt its power. That's why I just try to get out of the way of scripture up here. And I don't want to get in the way with my lame stories or speech that's not even that great, and I just want to preach scripture. It's powerful. One pastor said this, the word of God is so powerful, it transfers men from the realm of falsehood to that of truth, from the realm of darkness to that of light, from the realm of sin and death to to the, the righteousness in life. 
It changes sadness to joy, despair to hope, stagnation into growth, childness into to maturity, and failure into success. The Word of God is powerful. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The proclamation of the good news, which is found in the Word of God, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The sword of the Spirit is way more powerful than any physical sword. It's way more powerful than any physical weapon. You think the the government is powerful? I know a lot of us think the government is becoming too powerful. You think the government is powerful? The church has been given the sword of the Spirit. Unfortunately, many Christians and many churches are embarrassed to use it. Instead, they rely on gimmicks or entertainment or man-centered reasoning or witty talks. Pastors rely on their own personalities, not the sword of the Spirit. Churches trust in traditions become more about activism or politics. Embarrassed by the sword, they say it's, it's outdated, it's not scientific, it's politically, politically incorrect. We, we, we shouldn't use it, it's offensive. Well, it is offensive. It's also powerful. I just want to end one of my favorite quotes of all times in the history of Christianity. It's a quote from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon about the Word of God. He says this, suppose a number of persons were to take into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beast. There he is in a cage, and here come all the soldiers of an army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and, if they, and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly step back and open the door. And let the lion out? I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Don't be ashamed. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Don't be embarrassed. Boldly proclaim truth. Open the door and let the lion out. Wield the sword of the Spirit. It is powerful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I repent. I ask for forgiveness on behalf of the church at large, Lord, that we forgot how powerful the sword of the Spirit is. God, in my own life, when I am tempted to, to rely on my, my personal abilities, Lord, God, I repent of that. Help me remember how powerful your word is, Lord, how powerful it's been in my life. Help me to remember the history of the church, Lord, whole kingdoms, Lord, taken over. God, I pray the church wakes up. Wakes up to the power that's in their hands that's been given to to, to them, Lord, the sword of the Spirit. 
I pray we as Christians, Lord, put on the whole armor of God, Lord. That we, put a, we take up the shield of faith, Lord. When temptation comes, we, we, we trust, we have faith in you, Lord, that what you've asked us to do is best because you're good, you're loving, you're our Father. Why wouldn't you tell us what's best? That we trust in that and we obey, Lord, not knowing what the outcome will be, but just trusting you with it. God, I pray for the helmet of sal- salvation, Lord, that, that we put on the helmet of salvation when hard things come, and they will in this life because we live in a fallen world. When they come, we hold on to the promises that you have promised. That we don't fear. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, we don't fear because you're good. You have promised good things. God, I pray that we take up the sword of the Spirit. God, I pray this church, this church, this local church, is always known for picking up the sword, Lord, and not being ashamed, not being ashamed that it may be offensive, not being ashamed that it may not be scientific, that we trust in its power, Lord, and we pray for the results of that, Lord. Whatever they may be, we know that, that your word goes out and it won't come back void, Lord. You will accomplish what you will accomplish. Help us to trust in that and proclaim truth. In your son's name, amen.